podcast five for land use planning being offered in early 2021, although it's now late 2020, and I'd like to say it's sunny, but it's, it's a bit cloudy. Bruce uh, Thompson is, uh, is across the uh, table from me. Uh, I'm Brian Valentine, and we're going to be talking today about watercourse crossings and the environmental effects on such crossings. So what's your experience? Uh, can you give us some background uh, before we d delve right into this, Bruce? Yeah, um, crossings of watercourses commonly consist of uh, access roads, that's probably the, the most common one, but also pipelines and other linear corridors uh, under or across naturally occurring watercourses. They pose one of the most frequent and sometimes significant uh, impacts of forestry, oil and gas, uh, road traffic or other activities. So we've devoted a whole podcast to that subject. It's also a nice bridge from the, the last podcast. You'll recall podcast four, we ended up talking about muskeg and uh, watercourses and contaminants into them. Uh, before we get, get onto it, I guess it's, it's get into it, it's important to, to point out that roads would pass over a watercourse, but when we're talking about under a watercourse, that might be a pipeline? That's right, yeah. So what type of uh, crossing structures are there? Uh, I mean, I know there's, I know you're going to focus on a couple, but it's safe to say it, it comes They'll come within a list including bridges, culverts, portable bridges, cabled log fills, snow fill, ice bridges, and fords. Do you want to elaborate on a couple? Yeah, um, bridges are, are common and they're probably the best compared to other types of crossings. Anything that avoids disturbing the habitat and goes right across from bank to bank is good. Uh, culverts, on the other hand, can actually cause a lot of damage if they're not designed up to capacity or if they're installed too high or some other uh, problem with them. Uh, just a brief word perhaps for the, uh, the audience, uh, what's a Ford? It's not a car in this context, is it? No, um, it's a Ford is a crossing without actually doing any crossing stru structure at all, maybe just filling in the stream. And that of course is the worst. <laughs> In fact, I think it's against regulations and guidelines of governments and things. That causes the most damage. So, so the water course or stream or river is, is shallow to begin with. Now, there are a number of environmental issues raised by water course crossings. The most common include bankside erosion, uh, sedimentation, obstruction of fish movement, uh, fish habitat removal, release of contaminants, and increased access. Do you want to elaborate on a couple? Yeah, and among the most common are uh, bankside erosion and uh, stripping of the vegetation on the banks. So when the vegetation is cleared to uh, accommodate the construction, that uh, mobilizes the soil. The, the roots of the vegetation aren't there anymore. And it mobilizes the soil to be washed off when it rains or snow melts and washes into the, into the watercourse. And when the soil is washed into the, into the stream, it uh, results in the turbidity of water. It makes the water, I think everyone's seen that kind of milky color. Well, that's uh, soil particles in the water. And eventually they sediment and go onto the, the, can, the bottom. Can I interrupt there? You used a, a big word there, turbidity. What does that mean? Turbidity is when the water is kind of cloudy. And in this case, it's soil particles coming off the uh, disturbed slope. Uh, thanks. 
so that's that's the uh, the effect of bankside erosion. What what about fish movement, fish habitat removal, stuff like that? Yeah, um, often if the the uh, crossing isn't designed properly, for example, a culvert, the uh, the height of the culvert may pose a problem and uh, make it impossible for the fish to go up in the spring or fall to their spawning areas. And it also may take up uh, valuable habitat, you know, the, all the gravel and rocks and everything where the food chain lives and the fish depend on. So you talked earlier about the mobilizing of the soil or the movement of the soil in, into the water, into the water course, and this, this is sedimentation. And I wondered if you could you could tell us a, a little bit about what sedimentation means for three or four things, such as decline uh, in water quality, smothering a spawning habitat, uh, particles in the water affecting fish breathing, and how sediments absorb heat energy. Yeah, well, first of all, the decline in water quality results from what I was uh, talking about a minute ago which is when the soil gets washed off the slope, enters the water, and makes the water all cloudy. And uh, eventually, those sediments sink. And when they do so, they may smother spawning habitat, like the gravel that the fish need to lay their eggs in. It's very sensitive. And when uh, mud or sediment uh, covers them up, then they're not useful anymore as, uh, as spawning habitat. The other thing that particles do in the water is affect fish respiration by irritating the gills. It's almost like a like sandpaper. Um, it, it rubs off the mucus coating the gills, which protects it and allows bacteria and fungi to uh, attack the gills of the fish, which can often be fatal. And the point about the sediments absorbing heat energy, cloudy water, like uh, with sediment in it, warms up under the sunlight faster than does clear water. And what may happen over months or years is that when there's a steady uh, erosion on the banks and the water becomes cloudy, the stream warms up. Hmm. And uh, what could happen then is that the, the type of fish species inhabiting the stream changes from, from a cold water species like trout to a warm water species like uh, pickerel or perch or walleye. So to the extent that uh, other, other organisms in the, uh, in the ecosystem uh, depended on trout, or uh, they're affected, and to the, to the extent that uh, humans may have fished, trout, fished for trout, they're affected as well then, I suppose. That, that's right. So what, what factors should we consider in siting and design of watercourse crossings? I know earlier you wanted to talk, you wanted to uh, include three or, four, three or four things in our discussion. The first thing that should be looked at is the expected life of the crossing. Is it temporary or is it permanent? And for a permanent crossing, uh, it's very important to consider what the uh, increase in access to the lands uh, is going to change. So it could be important wildlife area or hunting area and the, the presence of just one crossing left for years and years means that there's more people going in, people from the, the, the city maybe, going in and uh, putting more hunting or fishing pressure on the wildlife in, in the area that was formerly wilderness area. 
We have to also look at the what we call the timing windows for fish sensitivity, that is when they spawn. So for the construction period of a watercourse crossing, we need to find out when the fish are spawning and avoid those times for any kind of disturbance of the banks. So this re relates back to an earlier point where you said that we have to be concerned about the smothering of spawning habit. That's right, yeah, and uh, that over time can change the whole nature of the, uh, of the stream. What about fishery and wildlife values? Should we, uh, obviously we should consider them as a factor, but to what extent? A badly designed watercourse crossing by um, changing the, the types of flows, the timing of flows, and changing the nature of the water to a more uh, sediment type of water will affect, uh, inevitably affect fish and uh, wildlife as well because many of the wildlife depend on uh, fish for their, uh, for their sustenance. It goes without saying then, from what we've been chatting about, that we should avoid adverse impacts of watercourse crossings and I suppose the, the easiest way to do that is to use existing stream crossings but if there are no existing bridges, for example, um, what are some of the principles we should follow? So some of the, the mitigation objectives that we should follow are that uh, any loss to the aquatic environment occurring during the construction period, which is, is the most sensitive period, is fully mitigated. And that means uh, by limiting removal of the vegetation on the banks, preventing soil erosion and sedimentation, and that all of the areas of the bed and shore, if they're disturbed during construct, construction, should be rehabilitated. That we have to make sure that silt or other material is not allowed to enter the watercourse, especially during the construction period when things like uh, fuel or oil lubricants may be stored next to the stream. They should be pulled back. And generally speaking, during the construction period, the erosion and sedimentation of the watercourse should be avoided or min at least minimized. So, so we don't want many crossings, uh, bridges or culverts or pipelines. Is there a rule of thumb? Nothing within a kilometer, two kilometers, five kilometers, that sort of idea? Yeah, it's, it's good to minimize them if possible. And in cases that work out well, it's where one uh, community or uh, more commonly in industry like forestry or oil and gas, uh, get together and decide to put in only one watercourse crossing that they both will use as opposed to putting in t two, one for each. And I guess nothing within say two kilometers of yeah is, is a good rule of thumb. That would be, yes. Can you just give us a, some general uh, feedback really on what, are, what some of the technical ways of avoiding adverse effects are? So, in terms of uh, sedimentation, erosion and sedimentation of the banks, the uh, proponent should immediately stabilize all of the disturbed areas and uh, use sloping which is gradual rather than steep. Often use things like uh, silt fencing and armoring to reduce erosion of the banks. Up to now we've been focusing on bridges and pipelines what about culverts? Are they environmentally favorable? Yeah, culverts are the most common type of uh, crossing structure and they're the cheapest, but they have a number of disadvantages. 
So one is that they constrict stream width and create high flow velocities as a result, even during low flow periods. In fact, uh, mostly during low flow periods because the water goes right along the bottom, hmm. creating a high water velocity. And that increases the chance of scouring of the bed and uh, downstream and leads to erosion. And also, high turbulence and water velocities tend to discourage fish passage. So uh, we can have modifications such as baffles on the bottom of the culvert to improve things. But generally speaking, um, culverts are the, maybe the, the cheapest, but not environmentally the best. So what, what are some of the, uh, the principles we should follow? What are some of the criteria for culverts if, if they are going to be used by a proponent? So uh, there's a number of things they can do or should do. Uh, the, first of all, the culvert should be able to accommodate the amount of water during peak flows, like in the spring. Uh, that's a common problem that occurs. They must obviously be structurally sound so we don't get sloping of the, or slumping of the banks. And they produce neither sedimentation nor scou scour. Um, they allow the passage of debris, especially in the spring, without blocking up. And they permit fish passage at all times of year. And finally, to, they should preserve or reestablish the stream bed, which is where the food chain organisms live and where they may be, there may be uh, fish spawning beds. All good principles, I'm sure, but to conclude this podcast, do you have any examples of a troublesome highway culvert that you've had to deal with? Yeah, I remember back a number of years, and it was in the late 90s, and I did a preliminary environmental impact assessment on the proposed upgrading of Highway 63 leading north from Fort McMurray to Syncrit, Suncor and uh, other major OSN's leases. At one of the existing crossings at Large Creek, I observed the culvert was positioned so high above the bed of the creek at the, at the culvert outlet that it pr produced a sort of a spout about one meter above the water surface. This was in September when the water flows in the creek were low. It seems like a small thing, but, but I couldn't imagine any fish swimming literally upward in a narrow spout of water like that uh, falling at high speed. Unfortunately, th there was a long stretch of a very good fish spawning, rearing and feeding habitat upstream, at least half a kilometer of it, in fact. So a single culvert had made a large quantity of spawning habitat unavailable to fish who spawn in the autumn. In my view, this would be a significant adverse impact on one or more fish populations caused by the interruption of stream flow due to the incorrect placement of the culvert. Well, I hate to conclude this podcast on a bit of a downer note, but there's a bit of a downer note and a, sort of a heads up for those of you uh, dealing with watercourse crossings. Uh, thanks again, Bruce. I've enjoyed the chat and Stay tuned for podcast six. Thank you.